There was a uh, great master once who commissioned a piece of art. He uh, directed how this piece of art was supposed to be done. He insisted that the man who painted it followed every step precisely the way it was supposed to be painted. And it didn't make any sense. It was weird. And every day this, this artist, this man, was to walk out and he was to get dressed in his best clothes. And he was to walk into the studio and he was to lay down the same strokes every day until the master came. And he was to walk in and he, he would walk into the room and he'd go to the same canvas every day and he'd lay down the same strokes not knowing what he was supposed to do. But before he did any of that, he was supposed to place in the room, various things. And on one part of the room, he was supposed to put a table. And on the other part of the room, he was supposed to put a lamp. And in, in the other corner of the room, he was supposed to put an incense uh, an incense stand that he could burn incense whenever he walked into the room. And, and there was a curtain. Went across the back of the room that separated the front of the room from the back of the room. And this curtain had particular woven style that was supposed to be done to it and and he was not allowed to go behind the curtain except one time one time each year he was to walk behind the curtain and behind the curtain there were these particular things he was supposed to do and then walk out backwards very carefully he didn't understand any of it but he knew the master was good The master told the man, continue to do this every day. And as he approached the canvas every day, it would become more and more clear. Years go by. Years go by. And he still doesn't understand, but he continues to do it. He continues to labor and continues to work to create this beautiful picture that the master has laid out for him to create. Till one day, the master arrives. And this artist, this man who's been commissioned to do the master's work over and over and over meets a man who comes into the room and everything in the room begins to talk about the master. The table begins to shout that it was a picture of the master. The lampstand begins to show that the master has been providing the light the whole time. The incense that he's been burning is indicative of what the Master has been doing on his behalf. And he walks in and he tears the veil, the curtain, and says, now you can go into the back room whenever you want. And the man says, I don't understand the back room. And the Master turns around and sits down in the back room and says, you don't need to understand it, I'm here. And then the man steps back to look at the canvas that he's been painting on. Doing the strokes. 
wearing his finest clothes, doing the same strokes every day, and he steps back and he realizes the canvas he's been painting on is a picture of the master on a throne in that back room. And all of a sudden, everything makes sense. And the master looks at him and goes, there's more. And the artist is suddenly thrown for a loop. There's more than all of this. That right there, that's the picture of Hebrews 9, 1 through 14. That's the picture of ancient Israel in the tabernacle. They were serving the Lord without full understanding. And then Jesus walked in and said, I'm the object that you've been painting. I'm the expression of life that you have felt when you have walked into the room. I'm the sustenance that's on the table. I'm the light that's on the other side of the room lighting the table. I'm the incense that goes up, the sweet, fragrant incense that goes up on your behalf. I am this. So let's read together Hebrews chapter 9, verses 1 through 14. Now even the first covenant had regulations for worship and an earthly place of holiness. For a tent was prepared, the first section, in which were the lampstand and the table and the bread of the presence. It is called the holy place. Behind the second curtain was a second section called the Most Holy Place, having the golden altar of incense and the Ark of the Covenant covered on all sides with gold, in which was a golden urn holding the manna manna and Aaron's staff that budded, the the tablets and the tablets of the covenant. Above it were the cherubim, of glory overshadowing the mercy seat. Of these things we cannot now speak in detail. These preparations having thus been made, the the priests go regularly into the first section performing their ritual duties. (laughs) But into the second, only the high priest goes. And he but once a year, and not without taking blood, which he offers for himself and for the unintentional sins of the people. By this, the Holy Spirit indicates that the way into the holy places is not yet opened as long as the first section is still standing, which is symbolic for the present age. According to this arrangement, gifts and sacrifices are offered that cannot perfect the conscience of the worshiper, but deal only with food and drink and various washings, regulations for the body imposed until the time of reformation. But when Christ appeared as high priest 
of the good things that have come. Then, through the greater and more perfect tent, not made with hands, that which is not of this creation, he entered once for all into the holy places, not by means of the blood of goats and calves, but by means of his own blood, thus securing an eternal redemption. For if the blood of goats and bulls and the sprinkling of defiled persons with the ashes of a heifer sanctify for the purification of the flesh, how much more will the blood of Christ, who through the eternal spirit offered himself without blemish to God, purify our conscience from dead works to serve the living God. May God add his blessing to the reading and the hearing of his word. Now, we have this incredible picture in the tabernacle of Jesus. I say that flat out because that's what the author of Hebrews is getting at. He knows that we have this beautiful picture. And I don't know if you've ever seen a scale model of the tabernacle. It was not a huge room. Tabernacle probably from that wall to me to the back table is the whole size, not the very back table, but the table where people sit. The whole size of the tabernacle is about that size. This section, about the front row to where I was standing just a second ago to this window, is the Holy of Holies area. Then as you walk down, if you came into the tabernacle... From the back, this is great, that I have a mic, I can now walk around the room, fantastic. As you walked into the tabernacle, you came in the back in the middle, and over to your right, on this side, was a, a table. The table was set with bread, and plates, and a bowl, like a, a cup bowl type thing, where they would put juice, and that was here, and by juice I mean wine, but we're Baptists, juice. Right, And so it's right here, and then over here was a big menorah-like lampstand that lit the whole room. It was big. It wasn't small. It was big. Big light. The only light in the room, and it was bright enough to light the whole room. Big stand. The thing that Jesus, uh, they, they make a big copy of it, and they put it in the temple later on, and Jesus walks in and goes, That's me! Right, that's... That was John Elkin's paraphrase. It's John 8, chapter, uh, chapter 8, verse 12. And so... Right here in the front uh, of the curtain would be the incense altar. And it would be lit, and there would be a fragrant smoke going up from it over and over and over. And the priests would come in every day, and they would get to uh, do the services that they had to do every single day. They'd walk over every day. They'd bring in uh, the sacrifice. The sacrifice was done in the courtyard and they would come out after doing that, after having laid sacrifices down all day, they would come in into the tent where the lamp was lit and the bread was on the table. And they would walk over to the table and they would eat. Jesus likes eating. Let's just say that outright. There is something worshipful about a meal. Constantly in the Bible, that happens. I can't explain it except to say, I like eating too. And God evidently designed us to like to eat and to eat together. He likes it. 
So they would come and they'd come to the table and there were 12 pieces, loaves, sheets, I don't know, of bread representing 12 tribes of Israel. And the priest would come in, the high priest, with the stones, with the names engraved on his shoulder, with the stones, with the names engraved on his chest, representing Christ coming into the room. And the priests would take of the loaves and they would eat having their meat that they brought from outside, they would come in and they would eat their, their food as an act of worship by the light from the other side of the room that lit the table while the incense was rising. This was a daily thing. And how beautiful it was. The story we have of the tabernacle and what God did is amazing. What God has accomplished in Christ. So you've got the vision, you've got the image of the tabernacle, right? You can, you can kind of visualize it. Outside of the tent was the sacrificial offering, the altar. It was in the open courtyard where everybody can come. So grasp that for a second. Everybody is allowed to go into that open courtyard where the sacrifices are made. Everybody is permitted in there. The sacrifice was allowed for anybody who would worship Yahweh. Only the priest got to come into the holy place. Only the high priest got to go into the holy of holies. So we have here verse 1 of chapter 9. Now even the first covenant had regulations for worship in an earthly place of holiness. For a tent was prepared, the first, <laughs> the first section, <laughs> in which were the lampstand and the table and the bread of the presence. So let's deal with that first. He says, a tent is first the first covenant, that which he talked about in chapter 8, the first covenant, which was inadequate to save. In chapter 8, he, he brings it up and says, this first covenant had regulations for worship and an earthly place of holiness. So it had regulations that you had to follow. You had to dress a certain way in the first covenant. You had to look a certain way. You had to do the right strokes. You had to go in to the same place day in, day out, day in, day out. You came in and out. You did the same thing. You brought sacrifice every time something happened. The first covenant was one of constant cycling. Not so with the new covenant. Because where the first covenant was incomplete, the new covenant fulfills all the law. And no longer do you have to go into a constant cycle. Now you run into the presence of God and you go forward. It's beautiful. The master has come. He is sitting on the throne and he said, there's more for you to see. Only look upon me. And that's what we have in the book of Hebrews over and over and over. Gaze on Jesus. Look at Jesus. Consider Jesus. Stay straight at Jesus, there is more for you to see. There is more for you to see. This first covenant had regulations, the priests and the sacrificial system, and it had a tent or a tabernacle. The tent uh, was interesting to read this in the book of Hebrews. You'd think that he'd bring up the temple. You'd think that the author of Hebrews would say, there's a temple in which there's a Holy of Holies, and Jesus tore the veil, now you can go into the Holy of Holies, but he doesn't. He mentions specifically the tent. 
the tabernacle. And there's a reason for that. You see, when you are a Christian, you are in a tabernacle of Christ. It says, the word became flesh and tabernacled among us. In John chapter 1, verse 14. The word became flesh and tabernacled among us. It, Jesus came here and lived among us, but you are not, you, you don't belong here. If you're a Christian who has put your faith in Jesus Christ, you don't belong here. This isn't your home. You're in a tent in the desert, wandering. That's the image that we have. This is an image of the church, Christ dwelling within the church, and the church wandering on this earth until he restores everything. We get to have a temple, don't get me wrong. We are the temple of Christ in another analogy that Paul makes. But in this analogy here, the author of Hebrews uses a tent because it's apt for us. We are wandering, in a sense. We are moving and unsettled, and we should be. Faith in Christ is one of following where Christ moves. Just like the faith of the Israelites in Exodus was one of following where God led. Remember what Moses says, I will not go if you do not go in front of us. If you do not go before me, I will not go. Lord, do not send me off with these stiff-necked people by myself. I will not go if you're not going. And the Lord says, fine, I'll go in front of you. And they follow him. It's the same for us. We look at Christ and we go, where you go, I'm going to go. You lead the way. You Lead the way. So he mentions the tent, and then he mentions the lamp, which is so beautiful. The lamp, Jesus Christ, is the light of life. He is giving light to all who know him. It's not a lamp as in evangelistic lamp. This is inside the tent. This is after you've already made the sacrifice and come inside the tent. What Peter calls a holy priesthood. You are a holy priesthood made by God to go. You get access into the tent. This picture of the tent of the tabernacle is for Christians. And he is the light of life. Jesus says, I am the way, the truth, and the life. He says, I am the light of the world. Anyone who walks in me does not walk in darkness. Ergo, if you don't walk in him, you're in darkness. Remember that scene in... John chapter 8, when he's, it's the Feast of Dedication, and they have the big lamp, and they've just put it out, because the feast has just ended, they're just taking it down, and Jesus points at it and goes, I'm the light of the world! Anyone who walks in me will never walk in darkness! And everybody looks at the crazy rabbi and tries to ignore him, and he gets louder. This is Jesus. I'm the light of the world. I'm the light of life. You walk in me, you don't walk in darkness. Then you have the table of showbread, right? This is Jesus' claim. I am the bread of life. He is the one who sustains us. He is the one who gives us life. Even now, in heaven, he is giving you life. John chapter 6, verse 35, he claims this. I am the bread of life. I'm the bread come down from heaven. Then you've got the altar of incense, which we know is Christ's intercession on our behalf in heaven. 
It is the prayers of Christ in heaven. Right? And he is interceding on our behalf. We see Paul talk about this in Romans chapter 8, verse 34. That Christ intercedes on your behalf, even now. So think about this for just a moment. Jesus accomplishes these things now for us in heaven where he is. That first room of the tabernacle is not a picture of earth. It's a picture of the work of Christ going on in heaven. And we get a glimpse of it because we're priests made so by Jesus to go in and delight in his presence. Not to slave away and to serve, but to get a glimpse of heaven and delight in what he is doing. Right now, Christ is the light of life. Right now, Jesus is the bread of life. Right now, Jesus is interceding on your behalf. This is a picture of what Jesus is doing now for us. And there's a curtain. There's a curtain. It's been torn. So we can see that there's more. That there's even more. But we walk into that front room and we get a glimpse of what's going on in heaven. Oh, Christian, delight in the fact that he accomplishes these things for you now. You feel drained and empty at times. Remember, he's the bread of life. You feel directionless and lost at times. Remember, he's the light of life. You feel like you can't get approval from anyone. Remember, Jesus is interceding on your behalf, redeeming you even all the more every day, ensuring your salvation and more than that, but that your voice goes to God, Almighty, Creator of heaven and earth. Oh, what a great thing to ponder. Then you go past that inner curtain, that curtain into the most holy place, and we have the Ark of the Covenant. There, verse 3, behind the second curtain, (coughs) behind the second curtain was a second section called the most holy place, having the golden altar of incense and the Ark of the Covenant covered on all sides with gold, in which was a golden urn holding the manna and Aaron's staff that budded and the tablets of the covenant. Above it were the cherubim, of glory overshadowing the mercy seat. So here's the picture. You've got the Ark of the Covenant, a big box covered in gold with poles on each side that are held in rings. So if they ever had to move it, they had these very specific ways. They had to dress a very specific way. They had to walk a certain way. They had to purify themselves a certain way. And then they had to carry it a very specific way. When they don't, which they do, they fail to carry it the right way. When they don't, they lose battles. They lose the war, and one guy turns to dust. Terrifying. And why does he turn to dust? Because he tried to catch it. Oh, no! And he turns to dust, trying to do something good, not realizing, you don't touch this. It is too holy for you. So this box is terrifying. And on top of this box sat uh, a, a mercy seat, which 
from what I understand, looked a lot like a wisdom seat of the ancient Near East, which is a chair that kind of has a slope in it and a cushion on it and two little two legs that hold it up. It's not high off the ground, but it's where uh, judges would sit. They would sit on these mercy seats and they'd, they'd sit with their back straight and they would look very regal and they always looked very terrifying. Because you only came before them, if they were sitting on the mercy seat, you only came before them because there was something that needed to be judged. The glorious thing about our God is that he calls it a mercy seat. From the outset, God's intention has been mercy. From the beginning. And there's these two cherubim angel things with their wings that are terrifying looking holding over the mercy seat, that go over the top of it, and it's all of heaven gazing and bowing down to the seat, the judgment mercy seat. And so access is granted to us, and inside that ark was the, the, uh, the golden bowl with the manna in it and the stick that had budded, the staff that had budded, and the ark, the the tablets of the commandments, all inside this ark. So inside the ark, you've got Jesus, the bread of life, that has never gone bad. This is weird, because the manna that fell from the sky went bad the next day. The manna that fell from the sky went bad the next day, but there was this little bit that they kept in a golden bowl, and they put it inside the ark, and it never went bad. It was always there. Then you had the staff, the vine, from which a dead stick, from which life springs. Gee, sounds an awful lot like a picture of the cross, from which life springs. Also sounds like John chapter 15, I am the vine, you are the branches. And in his death we get life. Same picture. And then you've got the, the, the tablets of the covenant, the perfect law that Jesus obeyed perfectly. Law that Jesus obeyed perfectly. Living a perfect life. So, this is beautiful. And you could, you could talk about this all day. And then in verse 5b, the author of Hebrews goes, Oh yeah, we're not gonna, we're not really gonna go into all those things. We're not gonna go into the, all those things. He says, that's what that should be. Tra- it should be translated somewhere along the lines of, it, we read it, of these things we cannot now speak in detail. It should probably read something more like, of these things we are not right now going into detail. He says, basically, there's a lot there, but we're just going to move on. So I want you to understand what has happened here. The master has walked into the room and gone to the back and sat on the mercy seat and you see everything and you're overwhelmed by the imagery and he goes, there's a lot more for you to hear about me. There's more. There's more. You you ever think about heaven and how uh, maybe God will teach us the perfect worship song, we'll sing it for 500 years and then be done? That's not right. When you, when you get to heaven, you don't, you're not all issued a harp and put on a cloud. That's not how heaven looks. Instead, we get to heaven and the infinitely creative God continues to create. 
continues to move and, and, and make things great and, and expand the universes. And imagine what that's like with no sin holding you down. With no, no disease, no struggle, no, no pains keeping you from developing. And you get to know more and more of this infinitely creative God because you can't exhaust Him. Can you just think about that for a minute? When, when you get depressed on this earth, I, think about that. How glorious that's going to be. It's not, you know, you're not issued, not, you're not issued a gourd with strings on it and told, go play the lyre and learn this song. And in 500 years, you'll be done worshiping. Then you can take a nap. That's not heaven. Heaven is this place of constant growth and expansion and eternal creation that we can't even fathom. We can't even imagine all the terminology Jesus that God uses in the Bible, that Jesus uses when he talks about himself, all the terminology points to a kingdom that continues to grow, that continues to be created, that continues to expand. All of it. When he says, it is finished on the cross, he's referencing your sin being finished. When he says, it is finished in Revelation, he's referencing a birth. A birth of something new. As in, it has begun. And it will grow. And it will go. And he says here, we're not speaking of these things in detail. Isn't it great to know there is more for you to see? If you are stagnant in your faith relationship with Christ, know that that is not because you have exhausted him. That is because you are being given a breath. Get ready for the fire hose. God is going to show you who he is. The master has come. He has walked through the center. He has torn the veil and said, you used to look at those things. Now you get to walk through those things and look at these things. And I am present here with you. That is worthy of a whistle. It's worthy of some shock. So verses 6 and 7, let's go. These preparations having thus been made, the priests go in regularly to the first section performing their ritual duties, but into the second only the high priest goes, and he but once a year, and not without taking blood, which he offers for himself for the unintentional sins of the people. Jesus, the high priest, goes before us, into the Holy of Holies, offering his own body, as we read in verses 11 through 14, offering his own body as sacrifice that you would be given access to God. So here, the author of Hebrews references the, the service acts of the priest, where they're coming in and out from the presence of God, doing their ritual acts, and they get a glimpse of heaven daily. But there's one place that goes once a year. The high priest goes in once a year. And as we studied the high priest, remember, we studied what he wore. He has the name of God on his forehead. He's got the turban. He's got the, the names of Israel on his shoulders because he bears their sins before the Lord. He's got the names of the individual tribes over his heart on a breastplate. He's got the umen and the thumen, the, the two uh, decision pieces of God's will inside that breastplate. He's wearing a linen ephod, a perfect clean linen robe. He has bells on the bottom of his 
feet on the bottom of his robe, on the hem of his robe, with pomegranates sewn next to them to show the sustenance of God through the gospel sound as he walks through the camp. Can you just imagine with me, on the Day of Atonement, when you would be in your tent and you would hear the jingling of the high priest walking through the camp on the way to make atonement for your sins. I mean, that's better than the ice cream truck. You'd be sitting in your tent and you'd be praying, you'd be thinking you're just a normal tribe member of whatever tribe in Israel and you'd hear jingle, jingle, jingle as the high priest walked through the camp. I imagine that there were there were areas of the camp where people would cheer. And I imagine there were areas of the camp where people would fall to dead silence. I imagine that there were areas of the camp where people just ignored it. Yeah, you're going to make atonement for me. I'm just going to continue making my food for the day. I imagine all those existed because all those exist now. We have responses and worship of screams and shouts and raised hands in the kingdom. And we have responses and worship of falling before our face in utter silence. And we have responses and worship of contemplation of what's going through. And we have responses and worship of I'm going to follow it and cheer and run out of my tent. And then we have people who don't respond at all. Who lay in their tent and ignore the atonement being made. And those will face damnation. Those who ignore Christ. And the priest would go to the sacrificial altar, altar. He'd sacrifice the lamb. He'd pour the blood out. He'd sprinkle it on the horns of the altar for all to see. He would then take that blood and go into the holy place first, acknowledging the bread, seeing the light, lighting the incense, letting the smoke rise, and then he'd walk into the Holy of Holies and he'd throw the blood on the mercy seat, proclaiming, clean, clean, clean. And then he'd walk out backwards. And they would be atoned for for a year. I tell you, that's the picture of Jesus Christ. Except, instead of a year, it's forever. And instead of walking out backwards, he takes his seat on the throne and tears the veil so you can see it. Jesus went once and for all into the heavenly place for us, the Holy of Holies, that we would be able to join in the praise and glory and adoration of God clean before him. Jesus went once for all sins, one time, the eternal God takes his own blood before God himself. The eternal Son of God takes his own blood before the eternal God and says, this is the covering for all who will believe in me. And we are granted freedom and life. Then we have this interesting phrase in verses 8 through 10. By This, the Holy Spirit indicates that the way into the holy places is not yet open as long as the first section is still standing, which is symbolic for the present age. According to this arrangement, gifts and sacrifices offered that cannot 
perfect the conscience of the worshiper, but deal only with food and drink and various washings, regulations for the body, imposed until the time of reformation. Okay, let's do a couple word things here first. That word reformation means until things are made straight. Until things are made plain. Until things are, are made straight. Jesus says, the way is wide that leads to destruction. gate is narrow that leads to salvation. And straight is the path. Jesus is this straight way. And the Holy Spirit says the way was not open, though the way is guarded. Let's just clarify that. In Genesis chapter 3, when man falls, God puts an angel to guard what? The way to the tree of life. That's a purposeful Hebrew poetic statement. The way has always been there. The way has always been protected. The way has always been guarded, and it's one way. It's Jesus Christ. That way has always been. He was with God in the beginning. Nothing was created that was, not, that was created. Without him, nothing was created. He is God. He is the way, the truth, and the life. No one comes into the Father but by him. This is Jesus. The way has been guarded. It has been protected for eternity. And the way was not open so long as we were dependent on our own religious activity. The Holy Spirit indicates that as long as you are subservient to a religious system, as long as you are hinging on a sacrificial system for your salvation, the way is not open. Indeed, there is one way, and that is Jesus. And it requires a total abandonment of your self-righteousness. That's why you get it. Because if it didn't require a total abandonment of your self-righteousness, then you wouldn't get it. But because Jesus Christ, the righteous, lived a perfect life on your behalf, then took your sins, died on the cross, and then rose again from the dead, and then ascended into heaven, you get life. But only through faith alone, by grace alone, do you get it. And this is a gift of God that no man may boast. So he says here, look, look at what he says, this, this Holy Spirit indicates that, there's, that the way into the holy place is not yet open. So you've got one witness in the Holy Spirit. The Holy Spirit says that religion and sacrificial system cannot save you. Holy Spirit first. And then the second witness, the second testimony here, is the conscience. The conscience dictates that the sacrificial system and the religious system cannot save you. That all of that system was designed to point you to Jesus. That everything in the tabernacle, outside the tabernacle, did you know even, even the tent itself, like even the making of the tent, points you to Christ? The type of wood, the type of settings that they used, silver, gold, there is so much there. There is so much there that we can now understand, and there's a bunch of stuff there that we can't possibly fathom. I think in heaven, there's going to be a lot to see and learn and go, wow, that meant this? 
There is so much that God has laid out for you to see Jesus. And for you to go, my own works will not save me. I need him. I need him to do it. There is so much there. So the first witness is the Holy Spirit saying that that won't save you. The second witness is our own conscience. And anyone who has tried to be righteous on their own knows this. Anyone who has tried to be righteous on their own knows this. My father-in-law tells about when he was a Catholic and how he'd go to confession. And then on his way home from confession, he would think, oh, i got to go back. Because if you're relying on your own righteousness, you'll know it's inadequate. The conscience will not let you say that you are safe. The conscience will not let you. And when did these two witnesses recognize Jesus? When the way was made straight. Until the time of reformation. Until the time when it's made straight and made plain. And in the very next verse. But when Christ appeared as high priest of the good things that have come. Then through the greater and more perfect tent that is Jesus not made with hands, that is not of this creation. Jesus is not of this world. He is not of this world. He came to this world. He landed in this world. He takes you out of this world. He is greater. He's not of creation. He's not made by hands. He is the perfect tent. He entered once and for all into the holy places. Both rooms walks through, not by the means of the blood of goats and calves, out of, but by the means of his own blood, thus securing an eternal redemption. For the, if the blood of goats and bulls and sprinkling of defiled persons with the ashes of a heifer sanctify for the purification of the flesh, how much more will the blood of Christ, who through the eternal spirit offered Himself without blemish to God, purify our conscience from dead works to serve the living God. The point is that we are purified by Christ and your conscience is made clean and shown that it is righteous because of what Christ has done. And indeed, that is life and life Abundant. Jesus granted access to mercy by his own blood. Let's pray and then we will remember that blood poured out for us and body broken.